0: Hello and welcome to the IMD Management Cast. I'm your host, John Joe Devlin, and in this series, I'll be speaking with the brightest minds of the business world about the attitudes, ideas, and strategies that underpin successful companies. For this third episode, I'm joined again by Sean Meehan, the Martin Hilty Professor of Marketing and Management and Dean of Faculty at IMD. So far, we've covered what customer centricity is, where the whole concept comes from, and how to develop a customer centric approach internally and externally. But once you are the most customer-centric company in your marketplace, the question then arises, how do you keep that position? Sean, we know very well there's a big difference between becoming a top company and staying at the top. So what are the pitfalls of success once you've managed to develop this customer-centric approach?
1: Really important to give time to this, John Joe, because they will emerge for anyone. First of all, there's gravity. We talked about thinking of this in terms of a gravitational force, the outside in being gradually pulled back to the inside out. Let's call that internal forces, just the temptation to do business as usual. I'd like to use the example of Virgin Atlantic. Virgin, the, the airline, gosh, that was such a breakthrough and so refreshing in the age of, of long haul travel. Richard Branson, well known as a Disruptor, before we talked about disruptors really, he would look at an industry and say, OK, what can be done better? How can we bring a bit of excitement, youth, energy and irreverence to a particular category? And and he did that with with airlines. He went out and hired people who didn't have great airline experience. So, for example, all of his service and customer-facing people were hired from other industries, caring industries, in fact. And they tended to be hired on the metrics of being fun people, as well as other competencies. And they gave this real kind of theater to the customer journey from the moment of showing up at the airport to arrival, and you know, he looked at how do you get to the airport, he looked at what happens when you're in the airport, what happens when you're on the plane, and he innovated certainly with this idea that, yeah, we're going to take some short-term costs, this isn't going to be cheap. But many, many customers will love this and and come for it. And this is great for a segment of customers. And indeed, it was. And it enjoyed tremendous success. And then, of course, you know, the airline industry is subject to all the trials and tribulations of economic turbulence and fuel prices, economic cycles. And any airline has to respond to that and manage itself under those circumstances. Innovation definitely suffered within Virgin costs were more tightly managed and the breakpoint I think really came for them when their ownership structure changed. And I'm not blaming the ownership structure I'm just merely pointing out that it became non-virgin people so first of all it went to Singapore Airlines and that was you know that's another service oriented airline you would have thought everything would be fine there yeah but it's still a big airline and it is more traditional and more safe, I would say, than the buccaneering style of Virgin. It's still a competitive airline, still a good airline, but it isn't what it was. So internal forces, just the normal way of doing business, when you run out of ideas, when you tire, when your senior management is no longer there, when the founders no longer carry that flame, it's just too difficult to maintain. Customer centricity is running a marathon and it requires energy all the time. So time and internal forces and complexity will just drag you back in naturally and you have to fight that.
0: You've mentioned internal forces there. When innovation falters, when senior managers become tired, what about the negative pressure that comes from outside a company?
1: External forces are also at work. I can think here of the example of Market Basket. This wasn't from inside. This was an outsider influence, close outsider influence. Market Basket is a big retailer in the northeast of the United States. I would summarize its strategy by saying they offer lower prices than anyone else. They pay their people more, and they offer just great, great conditions for all stakeholders, including their shareholders. The shareholders are family shareholders. The family had a, an unfortunate history. There were two sides to the family. And, you know, the, the shareholding was 51.49, percent And uh, the 51% had their person in place with this particular strategy that was working so brilliantly for them. And through the switch of allegiance of one or two shareholders, the shareholders demanded that they have higher returns. And their argument was, look, you can pay us more. You can charge the customers more and you'll still charge them less than anyone else. You can pay your employees less and you'll still pay them more than anyone else. So this isn't all bad, it's okay, we'll still win in the marketplace. And the CEO said, no, this is, this is, you know, this is not the right way to do it. We have our value creation strategy, let's stick to it. And the, he came under a lot of pressure from them. They demanded that he change strategy, he refused, they fired him. Okay, what happens next? Well, first of all, his employees reacted. They basically said, you know, nonsense. We don't believe in what these shareholders are trying to do. We won't let them wreck the business. They went out on strike. Now, in the US, going out on strike is, is not an easy thing to do, and there aren't any protections. And, and so it's a, it was a very, very bold move by them. But they stuck with it. The suppliers then said, we won't deliver to the stores. You know, these guys are on strike for good reasons. We're in solidarity with them. And then customers, of course, couldn't buy food in a lot of these towns or in certain sections of these towns in the northeast of the United States. So in Massachusetts, for example, the state governor had to intervene and plead with the company to get its act together and sort this out. This was a bizarre thing. Customers were meeting at the weekend to stage protests. They would walk along the street with placards in support of a billionaire. You know, reinstate the CEO who was a billionaire. So these are poor people. And it was just an unusual thing. And this was essentially something outside of the control of management, forced upon it. They were absolutely pulling it inside out. And their response eventually was that, look, this isn't sustainable. The original CEO went to the private equity community got the money together, bought out the then majority shareholders, owns the entire company now, and they're returning to the original strategy. But that was very dramatic. He could have walked away, clearly, and the company
0: would have been inside out. So an example of a successful company being rocked by investors who perhaps didn't fully understand their customers. What about companies that are more straightforwardly disrupted, that are forced to change due to increasing customer demands?
1: In any industry, you're going to face the S-curve, you're going to face disruption. And the disruptor is going to be disrupted. One of the big flaws of disruption is that the disruptor doesn't realize they're very focused often on the short-term changes they bring to the market. They celebrate those. They put themselves on a pedestal. And what they don't realize is that the market will change dramatically as a result of their intervention. The fact that you have been a disruptor and you have grown into this colossus as a result is also a real pitfall, actually. And that's not to say that you should try to stay small. You will become big inevitably as you are achieving your ambition of creating customer value in new and better ways. But you've got to be incredibly cognizant of the demands that that puts on you to remain customer-centric, as Bezos has done actually in Amazon, or is doing in Amazon.
0: And so this idea of customer-centricity and maintaining it once you've become the leader in an industry, does it require individual efforts from big personality figures within companies to make these decisions, to keep them on the right track? Or or can these things be done by consensus, by a team? Is there a better or a worse way?
1: Yeah, I, I think let's come back to the idea that it is a shared belief. And a shared belief is not the same thing as the charismatic leader shouting from the pulpit and us all gen reflecting at the right moment. That actually is a pretty bad formula, I think, over time, proven to be. And those people will leave anyway, or they will be gone for, you know, in, in different ways. So it, it shouldn't and cannot rely on that. And in fact, if it's a shared belief, it, it isn't about that one person in any case. So I think number one, you've really got to know that shared beliefs matter. You know, John Lewis, a partnership, really, you know, at a very interesting moment now, trying to survive in, under the pressure of the internet retailers. And we'll watch its response with great interest. It's a real test, but they've been very, very customer-centric over a long time. They know that their beliefs matter. They know that the partnership matters and engaging everybody is absolutely key. And And I would point to another example, which gets me to the next step, which is, Knowing that they matter is one thing, but then showing it and demonstrating it through continuous moments of belief uh, also matter. And I'll link these two together in an example of Hilti, the global organization that provides equipment to professional construction workers around the world. They have something called the Hilti Culture Journey, which every new employee has to go through and experience, and they bring a new chapter to that journey every few years. Everyone goes through this. So everyone gets the same induction. Yeah, in the early moments of of the emergence of one of these chapters, the senior management will spend more time on it. But when it's refined and piloted, the board will go and go through this experience together. They will reflect, they will ask themselves and challenge themselves and be very critical with themselves about the performance of the organization, the role of culture in the organization, and what they can do to inculcate their correct culture. You know, the the solution is always the same. We need to demonstrate. We need to demonstrate. And what's that? Moments of belief, continual flows. So when you look at some of the really, really interesting moves that the company has made that are public, we know that they moved into fleet management of tools so that they continue to own the tools and, and they kind of rent them out in a lease agreement. That's a service provision. That's not a product manufacturing company anymore they went into mining. You know, that's not construction, but there was really there were really really good reasons for for that. How it made total sense. And by the way, it was the voice of a frontline sales rep that saw that opportunity and was able to bring it to the company and persuade them that this was an interesting thing to do. And that story and it's, it's so unlikely that that would have happened. That story is very well documented to try to help people see this is our belief system in action. Hilti is also a company that has a strong belief in direct sales. Well, they have a quasi-indirect model, shop-in-shops, that they use in some countries. Under certain conditions, it makes a ton of sense to reach customers that really value their products. And it, you know, there was a rationale to that. There was a story to that, and people needed to understand why we made this decision. And then, lastly, I would say, you know, as Jeff Bezos has said, all things come to an end. And the point there is. What do you do when that becomes kind of obvious to you, you know, when, you, when you're in the bind? And we call that being boldest when it matters most. You're really looking for courage to bet the shop. And don't forget, that comes after years of success. And after years of success, you're not used to betting the shop. You're used to doing the right thing for the customer, but it's routine. And usually these uh, moves are not below the waterline. But, you know... At some moment, like John Lewis is in right now, betting the shop is what you need to do.
0: You've mentioned before that the three core components that drive these moments, that belief, can really be boiled down to pain, fear, and ambition. And now we've just kind of spoken about the way companies inculcate the people that work there with the values that the company has. But can you do that, really? Can companies imbue their workers with one or all three of these feelings? So the simple answer is no. But I think if we clarify the question, it's a maybe. What we
1: really want is burningness. We don't want pain, fear, or ambition. We want burningness. That's the thing that create, pain, fear, or ambition create burningness. We want a sense of urgency, we want a sense of, Commitment to the customer, pioneering nature for the customer, fighting new every day for the customer, really pushing ourselves. Look, one of the very first questions you asked me in the series was who are the great practitioners over time? Procter Gamble is a brilliant practitioner over time. Tide is one of their absolute beam off brands. A very, very exciting brand. And it looks like Sean, what are you talking about? It's it's a washing butter, exciting brand. Look, it was created with the very, very clear value proposition of Tide washes Cleanest. Now, it was created in the late 40s. You can imagine white shirts, horrible grime in the atmosphere when you go out, you come back in the evening, you've got a gray shirt, and you know, you have to boil the darn thing to get it back to white again. Those were the conditions under which Tide, with its promise of Tide washes Cleanest, needed to perform. And they had this formula of snowy, brilliant fragrant. you know, that's how you will think of the clothes when they come out. And the R&D scientists had specific marching orders vis-à-vis snowy, brilliant, and fragrant. You know these things always have to be true. Now Tide is still the number one detergent brand in the world. This is you know a very long time later. This is highly unusual in consumer goods. It's a more than ten billion dollar brand. There aren't that many of them around the world, and it has done so by pioneering every day. So, first of all, it's gone through changes of the environment. We no longer have to walk around cities in, these, in the, that grime, gas filled, coke filled environment. It's safe to walk around. So, our shirts are not grey in the evening. We sometimes are not living in the same family unit. You know, you had the atomic family back then, you had a Mr., a Mrs., and two kids. That's what the classic household looked like. Well, that's just irrelevant today. I mean castles are, are every every shape and size that you can imagine. So people tend to wash in shorter cycles, in quicker cycles. They're not there during the day, so it needs to be on, you know, timed so the detergent can get sloppy during that time. Think about all of the conditions. Washing cold, washing for people with eczema. All of these things just became very important to consumers. Well, being ahead of the game with the consumer was where Tide wanted to be, and it's an innovation powerhouse. It's absolutely extraordinary. If you take a tablet of Tide today and smash it up on a table and bring a scientist in and compare the chemical composition of what you have today with what you had in the 40s, it is completely different. There is no similarity, and yet it is exactly the same brand serving totally different needs. So this is the idea of continually pioneering, that burning sense of, if you're gonna create customer value in new and better ways, it's not doing it once, it's doing it every day because the customer's life is changing every minute. Experiences are enriching people's lives, they're changing their expectations. Circumstances, I mean, goodness knows, we've, we've had incredible circumstances for the last two years, you know, yeah, we'll live life differently. And companies have to respond to this. Companies always need to be burning. So that's the thing I'm looking for. They shouldn't be going about creating pain. Pain will come if if it's deserved. They shouldn't be creating fear. It'll be there if it's deserved. What they should be creating is ambition and demonstrating this is just a darn good thing to do. And I think that burningness is what keeps people on their toes, and, and keeps these companies great over a long time. And, and there are there are several that are great over a long time. There are exemplars out there. It's just not the dominant model.
0: Well, wow. I, uh, I must say, I wasn't expecting to receive a lesson in this from Tide, but I can see now that actually, if you are able to maintain that top position for so long, perhaps that is a better example than even the Amazons and the Tescos of this world. Sean, thank you so much for that. In next week's episode, I'll be meeting with Sean one more time to explore the future of customer centricity, both from a consumer perspective and from a company perspective. What's changing and what to expect in the future and whether customer centricity will become more or less important. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Management Cast from IMD. For more to read, you can go to IMD online, which offers exclusive business intelligence and interviews with the brightest minds in the industry. Written by experts, Four experts.